Coming up today, Matt Burgess dives into Ukraine's information war and Grace meets a woman who was born without her temporal lobe. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Grace Brown. Hello. This was the week when San Francisco police got a nasty surprise when they pulled over a vehicle for driving without headlights to find nobody behind the wheel. The driverless car, operated by a company called Cruise, then pulled away to find a safer location, according to the company. It was also the week when the Ukrainian government revealed Russian hackers tried to take down its power grid in a number of cyber attacks. Ukraine averted the attacks, but it, if it had been successful, two million people would have been without power. And finally, it was the week when there were further reports of the Omicron variant called Omicron XE, which is a hybrid of the two Omicron strains, BA1 and BA2, spreading in the UK and in other parts of the world, including Japan and China. The WHO said it could be the most transmissible variant yet, although this finding requires further confirmation. Don't you think Omicron XE sounds like a new phone model? It really does. It sounds like the new Huawei phone. (laughs) Shall we move on to facts? What did you learn this week, Matt Burgess? So this week I learned that the cream cheese Philadelphia has nothing to do with the city Philadelphia at all. So in fact, when it was first invented back in 1872, it was created, it was created in New York uh, by a man called uh, William Lawrence. And basically he picked Philadelphia as the name because the city was well known uh, to be like a centre of quality food and dairy at the time. That's very interesting, Matt. Can we expect more facts from your fridge next week? We can, but I don't know really if there's there's just some mouldy courgettes in there, so it's not going to be that exciting. Delicious. I wonder why Philadelphia was considered the home of quality food, considering mm. it's now associated most with the cheesesteak, which I guess, while very nice, is not maybe quality. Grace, what did you learn this week? Uh, this week I learned about an incident in 2009 in which an Italian neurosurgeon called Claudio Vitale had a heart attack while he was performing brain surgery. Despite this, he kept going and finished the surgery. And then half an hour later, after the surgery wrapped up, he had his own angioplasty procedure. Do you think he told the patient afterwards, like what happened? By the way, while I was doing this That's very, very question. delicate operation on your brain, I almost died, shaking alarmed a lot and sorry. Yeah, if, how would you respond? Yeah, I don't, I would, I'd be very worried. I'd be quite concerned if I was the patient <laughs> to find out that my uh, my doctor had a heart attack. Um, it does link quite nicely to our first story this week, though, which is about the brain uh, and the remarkable adaptability of the human brain, Grace. And it all starts in 2016 when scientists at MIT were contacted by a woman who told them that she had an interesting brain. So what happened next? Yeah, so uh, let's go back to early February 2016, um, when we'll we'll meet a woman called E.G. I'm going to refer to her by her initials to protect her privacy. Uh, Basically, E.G. stumbled upon this article in the New York Times. It was about a couple. It was about um, a couple of MIT scientists whose work involves studying how the brain reacts to music. And that same day, she sent them an email and she told them about her brain. Basically, E.G. is missing her left temporal lobe, which is a part of the brain thought to be involved in language processing. She's been missing this part of her brain all her life. It's likely caused by a stroke that she had while she was a baby. However, she didn't learn about her atypical brain until she was about 25 years old when she had her brain scanned for an unrelated reason. However, E.G. wasn't quite the right fit for what the scientists were studying, so they referred her on to another scientist called Evelina Fedorenko, who is a cognitive neuroscientist also at MIT who studies language, and that kicked off what became a very fruitful relationship between the two. 
So I found this story really interesting because I actually studied neuroscience at uni and one of the things I looked at was a link between music and language in the in the brain, in the temporal lobe using EEG studies. So I was really, really into this story even when, for the first moment I heard, heard about it. Um, so as, as you know, Grace, as well, the temporal lobe is obviously involved in a bunch of really important higher functions. But so you might expect that this woman would be kind of impaired, missing this or at least half of her temporal lobe function. But as you write in the piece, missing this chunk of her brain didn't really seem to affect EEG's life in the way you might expect. Yeah, that's right. I mean, by all accounts, E.G. has had a very successful life. She has a graduate degree. She has a very impressive career. And she speaks Russian, her second language, so well that she has dreamed in it. But when she first found out, she actually didn't tell anyone for the first 10 years other than her parents and her two closest friends. Since then, she's told a few more people, but it's still a very small circle who are aware of her unique brain anatomy. She doesn't really like people knowing about it, which, you know, you can tell by her choosing to go by her initials in the piece, because she says it creeps her out. Uh, Part of this may have been prompted by her experience with the medical community over the years, which she found very frustrating, she told me. Doctors had told her that her brain doesn't make sense, basically. One doctor told her that she should have seizures or that she should have the vocabulary of a fifth grader. And then finally, she got to meet Ev, who's the MIT scientist who we met at the top of the story. And EG said that she just didn't have any preconceived notions of what EG should or shouldn't be able to do. And she found that extremely refreshing. And then, like I said, uh, was more than willing to hand over her brain to be studied. It's interesting that the doctors were so surprised by the fact that she was able to kind of behave normally i guess it's kind of indicative of the school of thought in neuroscience that specific areas of the brain were like solely and exclusively concerned with specific functions dating back to phrenology and all that back in the day but in recent years they've been finding out that it's a lot more complicated than that and for evelina Fedorenko, meeting someone like eg with such a unique brain who was willing to be you know poked out and prodded out for research was basically a dream come true in terms of uh discovering what happens in the temporal lobe right so can you tell me a bit more about the research that started after eg and federenko met yeah so basically ev's lab focuses on uncovering how the brain regions thought to play a role in language learning and comprehension develop the exact role of each of these is yet to be truly demystified and in particular how exactly the system emerges is a particularly tricky element to study doing so would require scanning the brains of children between the ages of one and three whose language abilities are still developing and basically scientists don't really have the tools for probing kids brains at that time yet um, so when EG turned up her lab, I was able to recognize this could be a really golden opportunity for asking some of those key questions that you mentioned related to how these brain regions emerge. So they've spent the last few years doing some research uh, together, I guess, and they've just published their first paper. So what did they find out from studying EG's brain? Yeah, so this is the first paper that's come out of their relationship. Um, and it's a really interesting one. So to give a little bit of context for most people, the majority of language processing takes place in the brain's left hemisphere. For some, the load is split equally between the two hemispheres, and even more rarely, the right hemisphere takes up most of the task. Scientists don't really know why that, you know, it's different for some people, um, but one of the scientists I spoke to said it tends to be more likely if you're left-handed to take up the task in your right hemisphere. Um, and language processing largely takes place in two major parts of the brain, the frontal and the temporal regions. Uh, typically, the temporal lobes develop first, and then the frontal areas develop a little later at around five years old. At this point, the language network is considered fully mature. But because EG's left temporal lobe is missing, the team were able to um, you know, eke out an opportunity to answer a really interesting que- question, which is, are the temporal regions a prerequisite for setting up the frontal language areas? 
And so in order to test this, they wanted to know whether EG showed any language activity in her fully intact left frontal lobe. And if it was the case that she did, then that would suggest that frontal language areas can emerge without the need for a pre-existing temporal lobe in the same hemisphere. But if she didn't, then it would suggest that temporal language areas are really a kind of must-have for the emergence of the frontal ones. So to test this, they used uh, an approach called functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, uh, to capture EG's brain activity while she performed certain word-related tasks, such as reading sentences. So she would basically be sitting in the MRI scanner and, you know, reading out a couple of sentences, and they would basically just watch her brain while she did this. And they looked for evidence of language activity in her left frontal lobe while she was doing these tasks and compared her brain activity to around 90 what we call neurotypical controls, basically just people who do have an intact left temporal lobe and really surprisingly they found that there was no activity so they're able to conclude that the the existence of temporal language areas appeared to be a non-negotiable basically for the emergence of the frontal language areas and still they found that her left frontal cortex is perfectly capable of supporting high level cognitive functions which they confirmed by getting her to do some basic math tasks and watched while her brain responded and they concluded that in the absence of her left temporal lobe, the task of language processing seems to have simply just shifted over to her right hemisphere. And they're also able to conclude that a single hemisphere appears to be completely sufficient to give proficient language skills, which is pretty cool. This is a really elegant demonstration of what neuroscience call um, neuroplasticity, right? This idea that the brain is adaptable and it can change in response to trauma and it can... Um, I guess up to a certain point, if it gets damaged, it can adapt and 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 still perform the same functions without much um, deficit. Um, but this isn't, I guess, not that surprising. It kind of confirms what we already knew, right? Yeah, I mean, I asked Ev, you know, going in when she first heard about EG's condition, um, you know, I asked her what she would expect from something like this. And she was like, I was totally unsurprised that EG has had a basically perfectly normal life because neuroscience has kind of figured out that uh, parts of our brain are surprisingly expendable, uh, especially if we gain that injury or abnormality in childhood when the brain is really, really plastic. You know, many of these people who do gain these injuries go on to live perfectly normal lives, and EG is a really good example of that. Um, you know, for example, take the rarely performed surgical practice of the hemispherectomy, which is used for children with epilepsy whose condition does not respond to medication. It basically entails removing half the brain where the seizures are taking place. So, you know, these children go on to really just have half a brain knocking about in their skull. And studies have shown that these children go on to retain basically typical cognition. And I also spoke to another scientist at Emory University called Ella Stream Ahmed, who studies how the brain reorganizes itself in the absence of certain centers, senses, such as in people who are born blind or deaf or without hands. And she explained how the way the brains adapt is remarkable. She knows people who have gone on to fly planes just using their feet. So how little difference EG's unique, unique brain has made to her life didn't really come as a shock to her. I think that's really interesting. And it's not just true of people, you know, born without senses or, you know, born with uh, missing parts of their brain or whatever. It's also true for all of us. You know, if you use certain parts of your body more, the corresponding brain areas in your motor cortex or your sensory cortex will be correspondingly larger. If you look at the brains of taxi drivers in a famous study, their hippocampi are larger yeah. because they have to do the knowledge. If you look at the brains of footballers, the brain area that controls their feet is larger than it is in non-footballers or, you know, elite athletes that do other sports same for tennis this has been spotted in so many different groups um i guess what's unusual about this study in this day and age is that we don't get that many kind of individual case studies of cases like eg anymore i guess 
the impetus is on getting kind of larger, more generalizable results. Um, some of the people you spoke to made the point that this is kind of perhaps bad science. Yeah, it's it's kind of just a general trend in science at large. And it's something I've written about a lot as a science journalist that it kind of uh, falls uh, in line with what we've called the replication crisis, where we figured out that a lot of big studies in psychology actually don't hold up because they were done in very specific uh, types of people and really just weren't big enough to be replicated in any kind of reliable way. And as a result, this meant that um, for your study to be taken seriously, you know, you want as many people as possible. But yeah, you're right. The scientists I spoke to show that in something, in a case like EG, you know, the amount of knowledge we were able to gain from her brain was, you know, incredibly revolutionary and not information that we would have been able to get from looking at, you know, 100 or 200 neurotypical people. And um, I really want to make the point that like case studies from the very beginning of neuroscience as we know it today have basically laid its foundation. You know, like take famous examples, which I'm sure you studied, um, like Broca's patient who in 1861 taught scientists which part of the brain controls speech production or the patient HM whose brain unraveled the mystery of how memories organize themselves in the brain. And then perhaps the most famous, Phineas Gage, who is a railroad worker who had an iron rod driven straight through his brain in 1848 and whose pers- personality changes following the injury are thought to have shown for the first time that some functions are associated with specific regions of the brain so these scientists emphasize that you know done right which they say does entail spending you know a long time analyzing cases like eg it's what they called deep data um can actually offer really really incredible insights into the brain i guess one of the other reasons that this kind of study has maybe fallen out of favor is not just because i guess this trend towards larger data sets but also because we are probably for probably for the best not Patients like HM came to be because of, you know, basically barbaric practices of neurosurgeon experimentation that were designed to treat various conditions, epilepsy, other 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 things. Yeah. And they were operated on by doctors who maybe just didn't really know what was going on and just decided to, you know, do hemispherectomies or frontal lobotomies in HM's mm-hmm. case, I think. And therefore, they knew that they had these brains that had been damaged in very, very specific and targeted ways. And that was a really good way of getting at what those parts of the brain that they had removed did mm-hmm. we don't really do that anymore at mm-hmm. least not in, in as widely as we used to so i guess that you know unless it's a case like eg's where they were born without a front temporal lobe and then got a brain scan and therefore then went to the doctors you, i guess there were just fewer of these cases floating mm-hmm. around right yeah they made that point you know it was really just a stroke of luck you know and it could be the case that you know because our brains are so adaptable that many of us are walking around with you know just like random injuries or brain or parts of our brain missing we just have no idea because we haven't gotten an mri scan um and really you know for her lab a case like this is so lucky because eg it was a perfect you know cir- perfect circumstance like eg had had this specific type of brain got an mri scan and then also also really importantly was willing to be studied which you know a lot of people not, might not be willing to do and yeah they make the point that you know how many more insights could be gained if more people were willing to do this and i think they mentioned something like there is an initiative starting up to get more people just kind of voluntarily getting their brain scanned which i think sounds pretty interesting um but yeah it is kind of a a slow process yeah you're right like you know how many people do you know that have had mri scans if they yeah. if they haven't had any symptoms or any cause to do it i guess mm-hmm. it's, it's quite quite unusual because it's still quite expensive yeah um so 
what's next? There's obviously published this first paper with EG. Are they going to continue looking at her? Are they going to try and move on? There's a kind of incredible coincidence that you're about to tell us about, which I was just completely amazed <laughs> by. Yeah, they have a ton of studies um, coming down the line um, focusing on EG's brain. Uh, they have already published another study, although it was in the form of a preprint. Uh, they looked at a brain region called the visual word form area, which is thought to be responsible for decoding the written forms of words. So basically, you know, when you read a word, it your when your brain figures it out. Uh, in neurotypical people, the region is found in the left ventral temporal cortex. But for EG it was basically just randomly distributed throughout her brain and despite this she was a really really good fast reader i've said um and for a future study they're also looking at how eg's missing temporal lobe affects her auditory system so basically how she hears and yes i like you mentioned i kind of buried the lead and there's an also a very interesting aspect to eg's family in general because eg's sister is also missing her right temporal lobe and is also largely unaffected by it which suggests there's likely some genetic component to these early childhood strokes that are causing the missing brain brain regions um so next up the team want to use both eg and her sister who is also volunteered to be studied to try and understand how social and emotional processing takes place predominantly in the right hemisphere and actually eg's entire family is getting involved uh, a third sibling and eg's father has also had the brain scanned although it turns out they each have two intact temporal lobes a bit boring as eg called it and a fourth sibling is also going to be scanned in the near future and EG really ultimately is just really happy that they're able to gain some insights from her brain. Um, you know, for so long, she felt very stigmatized by it and didn't really want to share it with anyone. So now that, you know, MIT scientists are so excited to look at it, she's just really, really happy that it's furthering neuroscience and that she also hopes it'll take some stigma away from what we consider atypical brains. So just to confirm, EG's missing her left temporal lobe yes. and her sister is missing her right temporal yes. lobe. That's insane. I know. That is, that is a, as you said, a dream for the, the people studying them. Yeah. I, I guess it's it's amazing that they haven't got any deficits as a result of this. It's just yeah. an incredible story and a really, really fascinating look at neuroscience and brain plasticity and a bunch of really, really interesting stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Do check it out on our website. Um, we'll put a link in the show notes. Our second story this week is about the war in Ukraine. Since the conflict began, Ukraine's use of information warfare has been lauded by onlookers. We've seen the country successfully petition world leaders and technology companies to send huge levels of support. President Zelensky has in some cases been made out to be a celebrity from him posting videos in the centre of Ukraine and his history as a TV personality. These are all very deliberate tactics and this week, Matt, you've been looking at the impact they've been having on the war and on the discourse around the war. So going into the war, we knew that Russia was very effective at overall information operations. Russia has a long history with propaganda and we saw how effective it could be online around the 2016 US election when it manipulated social platforms to spread disinformation and and cause confusion, essentially. And and quite often its tactics are very brazen. So if you look at the Salisbury poisonings in the UK, where it got two military officers uh, who allegedly did the poisoning to go on TV and say that being visiting the city just to see the the cathedral's spire um it shows how much the country is willing to sometimes basically downright lie really in presenting the information that it wants to get across and its own narratives and um, when when the war started we were expecting to see a lot of this and there has been a lot of russian activity in this space but maybe what we didn't expect was how effective ukraine would be in 
response. It's been incredibly communicative with the outside world, told stories of how the country has united and galvanized people against the Russian invasion. And these have very much led to sort of the, the shaping of the narrative around Ukraine in the popular view of the country. And while it's been doing this, it has largely, uh, it seems, been telling the truth. So while Russia has spread disinformation and lies about the war, Ukraine has had to keep its messaging accurate to be in line with its international partners and also to make sure that its credibility as a participant, a willing participant in this war has been upkept. I think it's really interesting that people have been characterizing what's happening on the ground in this war as like almost like a throwback to the old wars of the 20th century. But actually what's happening in the sort of digital space is not new because there's always been propaganda. But the, the extent to which there have been leaks and there have been kind of wars of information going on at the same time in parallel to this war on the ground is really, really interesting. And in particular, you've been looking at two recent incidents where Ukraine has published information about Russian troops. So at the end of March and the start of April, the Ukrainian intelligence divisions published two big data sets on its website. So these data sets include names, birthdays, passport numbers, job titles, and the personal information goes on for pages if you are scrolling through uh, one of these data sets. But it is a very different data set, as you just said, Amit. It allegedly contains the personal information of 1,600 Russian troops who served in Bucha, which is the Ukrainian city which has been devastated during the war and the scene of multiple potential war crimes. Um, there is another similar data set to this one with 1,600 names in that allegedly contains the names and contact details of 620 Russian spies who are registered to work at the Moscow office of the FSB, Russia's main security agency. And neither sets of these information was published by hackers. Uh, instead, they were put online by Ukraine's intelligence services with all the names and details freely available to anybody to see who, who can find their way to the website, which is publicly available. When they posted these details, uh, the, the Ukrainian authorities said every European should know their names. We, as Wired, haven't been able to verify the names and if the information is fully accurate, but others have seen the information, particularly around the FSB names uh, and and seen it in other databases and open source intelligence. So while it's important to take this with a pinch of salt, the data does feel to be accurate to some levels and in many ways seems to be uh, relatively unprecedented in terms of it being published as well. It's a really, really interesting turn of events. I, I guess my question is like, what does this achieve especially as kind of the curtain comes down around russia are the people whose names are on this list going to know about it obviously the fsb operatives in other countries might but the soldiers themselves their families are they the targets of this who is supposed to be acting on this information yeah i think that really does depend in terms of the overall sort of uh, motivations of who is looking at it but it does as i said appear to be one of the first times that a government has essentially doxed thousands of military personnel in one fell swoop and that's according to sort of experts that have studied this type of uh, information operations as well and when we're talking about doxing here we mean publishing people's personal information online for everyone to see so doxing is generally seen as a toxic online practice that can and has ruined people's lives and exposed them to dangerous situations in war times uh, this information could be damaging especially if it is incorrect or altered but in terms of the overall impact and harm that it could have when you're talking about something uh, such as an armed conflict as this uh, it's relatively low down the list of rights uh, people's rights that could be infringed when you they could essentially be killed in in a conflict this kind of puts me in mind of like the leaflet drops that used to happen behind enemy lines you know uh, a, a country's attempt to get into the hearts and, or at least the minds of the 
regular citizens of its opponents and try and speak to them directly, kind of break the propaganda veil. Is this the kind of thing that's happened before? What do the experts you speak to say? So they largely say that it's not uncommon for countries at war or in, or nation states in general to obviously have databases and lists of potential opponents or enemies. Um, so Jack McDonald, a senior lecturer in war studies at King's College London, who has researched privacy in war, says that throughout history, nations have kept lists of their opponents or tried to create them. But these have often been linked to counterinsurgency efforts and were typically not made public. So he said that openly publishing such lists of your opponent, particularly at the scale that digital operations appear to allow that seems to be very new and there may be a few reasons why ukraine did this so firstly it could potentially show russian authorities that the ukrainian intelligence have the ability to gather this information or access inf- information signaling that they're on top of uh, the who is in the russian ranks and may have access to their systems or anything like that but we don't actually know the direct sourcing of uh, these lists that have been published um, but secondly it also shows that people in ukraine that they're actually their authorities are monitoring the threats that are out there and they're aware of the troops that are in the space as well and thirdly it could also sort of help out international intelligence agencies who may not have information or may not be able to or if they do get it from these ukrainian sources may be able to corroborate it with other information so while the intelligence services that we have in the west may often have a huge amount of data on people or individuals or generally the operations that are happening they may not have everything and they certainly don't have everything and actually uh, the ukrainian authorities publishing some of this data if it is new for the first time or at least putting it all into one space and saying that something that they think is is credible does provide another source of the same information for others to be able to sort of like say this matches what we already know so it's just backing that up as well so there's a few different potential uses it's a really um, elegant solution to the unique communication problem that ukraine faces i guess where maybe russia can speak to its own citizens directly and not worry too much about what's in that media because, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter. So Putin can say things that are patently not true because he's speaking on Russian media directly to his own citizens. Ukraine has to kind of strike this balance between telling the truth to everyone because it doesn't want to, it needs to keep the international community on side, obviously, it needs to inform its own citizens and it needs to speak to Russia as well. So it's doing this kind of, this communication, this this publication is doing kind of three jobs. Yeah, as you said, speaking to Russia, speaking to its own citizens, and speaking to the international community. And that's where a list of names of people who have been involved in this invasion could be particularly, I guess, consequential. There's been increasing talk of trials and prosecutions for war crimes and the International Criminal Court as horrific evidence of things in, in Bucha and other places has, has come out. Do you think that there's a chance that this information could prove useful for those kind of situations in the future? In short, it potentially could be. But the thing that I should probably sort of clarify before this is that it may also be unlikely that Russia ever extradites anybody to face war crimes trials if they do happen. So most war crimes trials in the past that have happened have largely been where victors in a war have imprisoned those that they've captured and then been able to put them up for trial. Whereas in this particular instance, uh, somebody would either have to travel out to Russia, which they might do on a, a holiday or something in the future, and their name may then be on a data base or there is the very large chance that those troops that have been involved may be told don't travel outside of Russia the consequences of this war are obviously going to unfold over the next probably several years and that's an area that we don't necessarily know about yet but logistics aside this information and these lists of troops names could be quite useful uh, in some contexts so um 
if the information they contain is accurate, it may provide a starting point for investigators looking into potential war crimes in Ukraine. So, for instance, a name could be linked to a photograph, which is linked to a social media account or a piece of footage that places somebody in a particular location or at a particular event. And each piece of information, while on its own, maybe very small, uh, could essentially be acting as a tiny piece in a much larger puzzle when you're trying to work out who was in a certain place and what they were doing and the events of one particular city or incident or attack. Um, And researchers are already sort of racing to save and archive thousands of TikToks, Telegram messages and social media posts in formats that they can be used in evidence further down the line. So while these lists of names may not be uh, they may not show anything. There's, if these if these troops were even there is something you would probably have to um, prove with other evidence uh, to even get to a stage of being able to try them or anything like that. But it may provide a starting point or a filter or a certain element that will allow people that are looking into potential war crimes and other investigations to then go on and link it to other pieces of data. One of the unique things about this war is that the sheer amount, as you alluded to there, Matt, the sheer amount of information that's still coming out, not necessarily from official channels, but yeah, through things like TikTok and Telegram. And thanks to the efforts that you've written about in the past of the Ukrainian authorities to keep the country connected, there are, you know, there still is, still is the ability to post um, and share information from most of the country, apart from, you know, isolated cities like Mariupol, perhaps. So, you know, this publication isn't the only way that information about Russian activities is coming out, is it? No, and while we're talking particularly about sort of Ukraine here, there are obviously lots of other um, actors or countries involved in this war, maybe not directly on the ground, but are playing a part in the overall sort of information sphere. So there has been a huge amount of information published about Russia's activities throughout the war. So international intelligence agencies and militaries have published information on troop movements and potential false flag operations. I think sort of uh, the UK's Ministry of Defence every day is tweeting out multiple... um, sort of short statements saying its latest intelligence updates on what is happening in uh, Ukraine and and those sorts of posts and those sort of making that information public, which probably... Um a military body or an intelligence agency wouldn't have done in the past lots of what we've seen would have been classified but even those small snippets helps to sort of frame the narrative around the war and what's actually happening and it gives it a bit of credibility as well so people that are reporting on this and uh, journalists and other people that are analyzing what's going on when they see this information is being published by um, official bodies then it gives it a little bit more credibility but there are also hacktivists involved so one group in particular called ddos secrets has uh, in recent years taken up the mantle which has been left by wikileaks as the group has largely uh, disappeared offline and they've been super active during the war so ddos secrets uh, has published more than 700 gigabytes of data from the russian government and more than 3 million russian emails and documents that are co-founder of the group says so ddos secrets claims to have published more than 360,000 files from russia's uh, media regulator 662,000 emails from an investment firm owned by a sanctioned russian individual 900,000 emails from a state-owned broadcaster and the list very much goes on and on and this is something that is relatively unprecedented as well um so russia as a country has not been a huge target for sort of hack and leak operations in the past 
So this is something that is relatively unusual as well, because Russia has not been a target of many sort of hack and leak operations. It's um, home to a lot of uh, cyber criminals and ransomware gangs and groups that have in the past extorted companies and threatened to publish their data and all of these types of getting information out there. But because Russia is a very uh, much home to these type of criminal gangs in many cases and also has a very sophisticated and aggressive hacking element that's stake-backed. It hasn't been much of a target for people hacking the country and then publishing information about it. And now that this is the, the, the country has gone to war with Ukraine and many people around the world obviously feel this is very unjust and the war should not be happening and have wanted to do whatever they can to try and... uh, counter the the efforts many hacktivists and people have been attacking uh digitally the russian state and russian bodies uh, and accessing all of this information so really now uh, we're at a stage where the amount of information that we've seen coming out of russia is more than at any other point in the past and this could be useful for researchers journalists people investigators looking at the state of russia and how the country has developed in recent years and how it has slowly move to become slightly more uh, separated from the rest of the world, particularly with internet uh, and its censorship and all of these things. So we're at a stage where there is being a huge amount of information being put out, which we haven't just haven't seen in the past. It'll be interesting to see whether that continues. I mean, Russia is on a track to being somewhere between Iran and North Korea, I guess you could argue in terms of like how closed down it is in terms of censorship, in terms of propaganda. So I guess how this plays out over the coming months and years is going to be really really interesting even though if we do have kind of a lot more insight into what's happened in the last few years from these leaked emails and things like that um i guess we are going to see this information more continuing as alongside the actual war right yeah i think that anything in the obviously digital space is super um timely and going to happen and, and probably many of the things that are sort of happening now will be out of date within a short amount of time but it is one of these spaces where um we know there is a huge amount of activity the russian state has done a huge amount of attempts at disinformation which are being debunked all the time by journalists and fact checkers and people around the world and um it's one of those things that on the ground it obviously can make an impact as well we've seen that um Ukrainian media and organizations have been uh, faced cyber attacks and sort of like defacement attempts and efforts to sort of distort the coverage um, that people on the ground in Ukraine are seeing to potentially destroy their morale or things like that. So there is this is a super interesting space, but it's also something that's hard to um, work out the actual uh, ramifications and impact of these things. So while we may be seeing huge amounts of information being published, like how that really translates into the real world and what that changes is something that disinformation researchers, misinformation researchers have been trying to work out for a very long time and it's very difficult to do. It's a really, really interesting and fascinating uh, problem of challenge. And Matt's got a story up uh, on it, which should be out by the time you are listening to this, um, alongside some other brilliant reporting on the situation in Ukraine, which you should really read on our website. That's about all we've got time for this week. Do let us know your thoughts on any of the stories we talked about this week or in previous episodes at podcast at wired.co.uk. And that's it from us. Thank you. Bye. 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 